The following presentation was recorded live at the 2015 National Bioneers Conference. To learn more about Bioneers programs and media products, visit www.bioneers.org. All right, welcome everyone. Thanks for coming to the session. Uh, who, who got a chance to see uh, Ben speak earlier about Lumio? Well, I, uh, I'll say you're in for a real treat because we have other folks who are part of the, the Lumio project here as well. So uh, the idea of this session was to talk about collaborative technologies. How can we use them in service of movement building and um, in that spirit of collaboration, we thought this configuration might be a little bit more bioneersy as a circle. So thanks for the, the leap of faith, and thanks for, we just threw off all the logistics of our wonderful camera crew and audio crew. Uh, th thank you, you guys, for, for being so supportive. Um, so the idea that we all talked about for this session was to really just make it a conversation and to really just feel into whatever wants to be discussed and speak to it. So. I'm going to hand over the mic to the fellow uh, panelists for just quick introductions. But beyond that, we figured we'd just pass the mic around and really have a conversation, because uh, I know there's a lot of really brilliant minds in this room that are doing just incredible projects around digital media, uh, software, movement building, activism, and more. Uh, and when we pass the mic around, one thing, was anyone at the Walking Water session yesterday? Yeah. So what I learned in that session was the value of uh, passing around the microphone in a consistent direction and a member of the indigenous community shared how that helps build energy. So we have a wonderful person who's volunteered to, to help us with the mics. And so we'll just pass it around as people have things just kind of in a circular clockwise direction uh, depending on who feels compelled to share. So with that, I'll do kind of the opposite and pass it counterclockwise to start. <laughs> do you want to say who you are? Oh, I'm, I'm Matthew uh, Monahan. I'm, I'm involved in a number of projects, uh, but uh, one of them is called the Namaste Foundation. We look for just exceptional nonprofits who are doing uh, really inspiring work uh, at the edges. And um, Bioneers is one of those nonprofits that we get really excited about supporting. Another is Lumio, and, uh, and so really happy to be here. I'm Ingrid. And um, I spent most of my career in, or the early part, I guess, in marketing technology and different things, and then took a six-month sabbatical to spend time learning about yoga and meditation and nutrition and things that I just thought would help me learn to live better. And that inspired me to create um, a new company called Pop Expert, where we aim to bring together the world's experts, specifically people who spend their time teaching, coaching, and consulting others um, to help them learn how to get better at life, work, and play. Hi, everybody. Um, my name is Edward West, and um, I am involved in all kinds of things. But uh, for the panel here, I'm uh, the founder of a company called Hilo. And Hilo is a way for communities that share a common goal, vision, or purpose, which is kind of like us. Um, even though we all share a common purpose, and potentially because we care about the world, a common purpose with everyone on Earth, we're all incredibly unique. And so Hilo is a way for us to discover the unique skills, talents, and resources in each of us in our community so that we can find synergy and collaborate together amongst our communities of purpose. 
So it's an, a new kind of platform that enables this synergy to be discovered in our communities so that we can do more together. And uh, I'm honored to be here to share a little bit about what we're doing and see how we can help you. Thank you. Um, so I, my name is Benjamin Knight, um, and I'm a co-founder of Lumio, which is a cooperative in New Zealand that's building a tool for collaborative decision making. Um, I've already talked a lot, a lot today, so I'm just going to take one minute. So that there's one minute for Alana Kraus here, who is also the co-founder of Lumio, to introduce herself. Expense. It's a surprise for surprise Alana. Surprise panel inclusion. <laughs> Hello, everybody. <laughs> um, I'm Alana. I'm really, really honored to be here at Bioneers and very inspired by everything that I've seen. Um, Lumio, many of you heard about it uh, earlier when Ben spoke, and it's basically, it's made for all of you. It's made for people who are doing amazing work out in the world and want to work in a highly collaborative, inclusive way that... Uh, you know, really involves the values that we want to see in the society that we want to build in the way that they're working. So that's what Lumio is about. It's in, and we try to do that too. So Lumio is an open source software uh, tool and it's worker-owned cooperative and we work very hard to uh, un try to understand how to do a tech startup in a completely different kind of way. Um, and I'm also involved in Inspiral, which is the wider network uh, that Lumio kind of grew out of um, and lots of other uh, similarly driven projects and companies and entrepreneurial people uh, who put the social, positive social impact first and try to get there through uh, the tools of business and ventures and um, community building and yeah, so that's me. I'm originally from here and now based in New Zealand so it's wonderful to be able to make this connection back to where I'm from. So sure, I'll, I'll toss out the question I guess, so just you know, the theme is how do we use technology to build movements and how do we uh, embrace the collaborative nature of what software enables um, in this new digital age? And would love to invite reflections, uh, additional questions or comments in those, those themes and directed or, or not directed, however, uh, however you feel appropriate. So I'm kind of the, dino the dinosaur back here. I started in computer graphics in 1972, and I've also done a lot of work in communication, like neurolinguistic programming, things like that. The question I have is, how does communication that's done virtually over a network differ from face-to-face -face communication, which has obvious advantages and obvious disadvantages, and what is this type of thing good for, and what is it not so good for? Um, on Pop Expert, one of the things that we do is enable live one-to-one -one video chat sessions um, in the platform. And when we started, we made a very conscious choice to deliver expertise that's live in that one-to-one -one manner instead of in a broadcast manner, specifically because we found that when you are on a one-to-one -one session with somebody, as long as the technology is working smoothly enough that you can kind of forget about it, um, what happens, especially if it's in kind of an hour-long session versus a quick chat, is you almost tend to forget about the technology and you start to focus on the facial expressions and the connection. And we found that it can strike a, kind of such a human connection if 
executed well, um, that you almost like feel like you were in person there with them. Um, so I think the power of that that's really exciting is all of a sudden we can create these real human connections between people where there's substantial distance. So people you know, separated by geography. Um, where it can be less good, I think, is when you start to instead either kind of have that one-to-many broadcast or when you have um, things that just create more of a separation, I guess. In, when we're face-to-face, -face, we also feel people. And the, the other parts of our ability to interact with the world are engaged in, in the feeling sense, uh, the vibration of it. Is that lacking that f of importance, or is it something that's good enough? What we're going, what we're, what you're working with, is it good enough to keep the sense of rapport, the sense of empathy, etc., alive? So the the deeper connections are there, not just the more facile, easily made and easily broken connections. Are the connections lasting? Um, so. There's a few things I'd like to say um, sort of following that um, and obviously responding. There's, there's sort of the, the, the power and the promise of uh, like any-to-many communication is extraordinary, right? But obviously it comes with a cost, which is we're not building relationships, we're not building trust, we're not necessarily building empathy. But at the same time, the power of being able to potentially mobilize hundreds, thousands, even millions of people towards some kind of a cause or an action is extraordinary. But as the technologies progress, and, and Ingrid's an example of that, we're you know, obviously easily able to start to also drill down and build rapport and build empathy in one-on-one -on -one circumstances with anyone, theoretically, as, as technology reaches further, with anyone anywhere on the planet. And as the tools get built better, our ability to essentially feel at a distance and be connected to, to people is going to, to scale as well. And so to my mind, um, there's a kind of, one of the things I've been trying to figure out how to represent in the, the tools that I'm building is essential, essentially like fractal layers of, uh, of connectedness so that um, when it's appropriate to reach thousands, you can reach thousands but there's sort of nested layers of connection and communication down to very high-trust groups that are also functioning. And so when a high-trust group can, can build things and build connections, that's great. But if they need to go outside of their network to find the connections or the resources, the skills, they can kind of bump up a level to the next fractal layer. And so between all these pieces, I, I've made it, I don't know if you're familiar with, there's Metcalf's Law and there's Dunbar's number. So Metcalf's Law says that the value of a social network goes up with the square of the number of participants. And Dunbar's number is somewhere around 140, which is the number of relationships that a single person can meaningfully manage. So my, my uh, joke is that um, if we can do fractal communication well on the web, then we can have sort of Dunbar's number and Metcalf's law start to play well together. So that's my goal. Can, can I add something as well? I would love it. Um, for me, one of the things that, that comes up when you ask what is different about uh, 
communicating online is actually a lot about inclusion. And like, I know that the digital divide is a real thing and we still have a long way to go, um, equally including everybody online. But you know, the UN coming out and saying that internet access is a human right and the trend of you know, billions of people coming online on their mobile phones, I, I just think it's, it is heading in that direction. Um, and the way that technology can be inclusive is really compelling. You know, for example, uh, including people who have visual impairment um, on the same level in a dis decision-making discussion, uh, including people who are very pressed for time due to responsibilities in their lives, or having small children, or having uh, three jobs, or something like that, and, and don't have time to physically go to a meeting, um, including uh, people who speak different languages together in the same conversation, which has been, for me, one of the most inspiring things that's come out of Lumio, and it being in 35 different languages, and you have inline translations, so you can have yeah, I mean, <laughs> that's a kind of inclusion that I don't think is possible in the same way face-to-face, -face, although mm -hmm. other kinds of inclusion are possible face-to-face, -face, which are harder online. But when we talk about the digital divide, let's also talk about the digital bridge and the way that it can actually include more people who otherwise would have been left out. Taking it in a slightly different direction, but still very much this sparked for me, is we do a lot of work with people from around the world um, to support us in our business, various skill sets from um, video editing to research to copywriting and things. We found these people on um, what used to be called Odesk is now called Upwork. And while that platform may seem to be something that's oriented toward being very transactional, um, we found that once you find somebody great on the platform, we've continued to work with them for you know two years at this point, some of them, and continuing. And you start to build through that working relationship then a nice human connection. We had one of our video editors is in Serbia and they had a very devastating flood at one point over there. And our whole team was very sad and kind of was supporting, finding ways we could help support this team member um, who was, was still working with us through Upwork um, on a part-time basis, who we'd found through a technology platform, but everyone on the team really felt connected to them on a human level. So some of these tools that help us discover new people that we might not otherwise be able to collaborate with, as long as that collaboration can continue over time, we are still social creatures. And those natural human bonds and things, I think, will develop whether or not we ever meet face-to-face -face or even, I don't think we've even spoken on the phone live, so this is just email um, back and forth and there's strong connections. Yeah, one, one thing that comes up for me too is there's just a, a lot of trends that are going to continue to accelerate the uh, experience we have digitally because of the Oculus headsets and then the augmented reality. So. It's not necessarily in direct response to the question, but I think it's going to continue at an accelerating pace. Yeah. But the one thing that's missing is, is this. Right. <laughs> Touch. Sorry, did Touch. someone just ask what are those? What are those? Yeah. An Oculus Rift is a, like a virtual reality headset. Yeah, it does. Uh, Oculus Rift is, uh, it was acquired by Facebook and they're about to ship a whole bunch of units for different price points and markets. And, um, you know, I'm not necessarily saying it's the greatest idea in the world, but, uh, it's, it seems pretty clear that there are going to be a lot of virtual reality headsets, uh, that are going to be shipped out within the next two years. Um, and it has a lot of profound implications, I think, for how we engage with the technology. 
Just just building on that quickly. The sorry, I know there are a bunch of other questions. Just my um, I've been really disheartened by the trajectory that a lot of um, of augmented reality like there seems like there's so much potential there. And there's always this talk, like when people from Oculus go out and now from Facebook go out and talk about the potential of this technology, they always talk about empathy, this potential for you know a new way of connecting empathically across distance. And then the stuff that they're actually churning out, it's like it's it's military video games. It's like it's all it's like they just they've found a more compelling way to to acclimatize children to violence, more and more realistic violence. But it doesn't have to be like that. So UNICEF, um, UNICEF have rolled out this. The only time I've been impressed by augmented reality was in a room with uh, people from UNICEF showing this, uh, this 3D tour, um, not using Oculus, using some other technology, but this 3D tour of a Syrian refugee camp from the perspective of a refugee in Syria. And that was really, really powerful to me. And I, I just think the potential is there, but it's all in the way that we implement it and in the business models driving the companies that implement it. Um, I'm Jerry Dameron from the Go Green Culture Foundation in Maui, Hawaii. And we are launching a project where we are reaching out to 15,000 sustainability professionals around the world and asking them to send in a one-page or a five-minute video or a one-page explanation of the best sustainability practices that they're aware of for sustainable communities. And our intention is to collect hundreds and hundreds of sustainability best practices and categorize them into 10 actionable categories. And then we're doing a summit in March of next year in Maui where several hundred professionals are going to come in and we're going to choose what are the top 100 uh, best practices for sustainability and then publish them free. My question is, we have been assuming that we're just going to send out these primitive emails and go, help us pick the best sustainability practices. And, you know, I'm a neophyte in the digital realm, so I'd love just a couple minutes of coaching or suggestions. How could we use your systems to be more interactive, more engaging, less spammy, and elicit hundreds of these best practices that we're going to end up sharing with all the sustainability professionals? My answer would be talking to Alana. Um, <laughs> maybe after the session. I don't know if you want to give some... Okay. Uh, wow. I mean, there's lots and lots of ways you could go about that. I don't think there's any one answer. Um, but I will say that something really amazing happens when you open up sort of many-to-many -many conversations. That is, it's not the same as a centralized send something out, get something back one way. Because the thing is, w even the top 100 best sustainability practices are not the final answer. That's the beginning. And then there's a conversation between all these amazing experts and imagine what will happen from there about uh, what a synthesis would look like. So I'm really interested. And that's, you know, I think that's why things like conferences emerged. You know, this is why we do things like this, so we can come together. But now we have this opportunity for a whole other level of that kind of, of synthesis and community. 
Um, I went to a, some uh, like a gathering in New Zealand of a bunch of government people who are talking about public consultation, and they're just really excited about like Survey Monkey, and like we could send out the same surveys, but on the internet. And I basically said, "Look, if it's one way, it's not a consultation." And the room kind of went, well, "We can't imagine anything beyond that." And I just I understand that you know they have their own struggles, and I am very compassionate to what what where they are at, <laughs> but. I think for something as important as the top sustainability practices, uh, we need to not only have a one-way communication, but host uh, a conversation so that we can begin to synthesize and get to new places that no person will know walking into that conversation at the beginning. Is there an ideal number to invite into that conversation? A hundred might be... Nope. An ideal number. Uh, Is there an ideal number you guys like? It completely depends on how you facilitate it. I mean... A five, five people can be too many if everyone's talking at once and no one's listening to each other, and 5,000 can be too few if you're trying to really get the best out of uh, a population in terms of the solutions to very hard problems. But I'm confident that there are, there are people out there who uh, are next level on the facilitation, and in terms, you have to really invest in process design, invest in facilitation capacity, and really understand that this thing that's about the container, the how, the space between the uh, the way that we are with each other and, and how you hold that. And this is stuff that's being practiced, has been practiced in, in circles forever and people here, here have just amazing wisdom about, but let's bring that into the online space. Let's bring that wisdom there and, and see how we can facilitate um, to an un, you know, unlimited. What do I mean by facilitation? Okay, so, sorry, I feel like I'm talking way too much okay, no. now. Um, um, for me, what facilitation means is um, skillfully welcoming all of the diverse voices and viewpoints into helping uh, a group weave together You know what, what they're there to do. And that can take so many forms. Sometimes what's needed is you know somebody sitting there and moderating, um, maybe, in a if there's like a, a tension or a high conflict or something like that. But sometimes it's about um, let's remember that not everybody can show their best self through oration. You know, maybe we need to do something in the written word or movement or, you know, let's talk about the scale. Are, is talking all together in this big online group the right way or should we be splitting up into um, subgroups and then coming back or working groups it's that it's that noticing in the moment of I hear a, con a consensus emerging or I hear a conflict emerging let's shine a light on it where do we want to go with this I'm, I'm sure that you've experienced this kind of facilitation um, but when it comes to the digital space yeah yeah when it comes to the digital space I think it's about process design um, so, for example, we recently worked with uh, Statistics New Zealand, which runs the national census for the country of New Zealand. Um, and I thought that the way they went about it was, was really great because they rolled out Lumia, our tool, internally first and built capacity for a new kind of cross-silo collaboration that was completely new to people in a government department and practiced and then trained up internally people in the online facilitation uh, in this skill set, and then they launched a big public consultation. Um, and the way that, I mean, I think if they did it again, they'd be even braver and not, you know, try to presuppose all the questions and let it be more emergent, but they did open it up quite a bit. Um, 
one really exciting thing that came out of that for me was they hosted a conversation with a lot of people from the gender diversity community. And now New Zealand is going to be, I'm pretty sure, the first country in the world to have gender diverse options on the national census in 2018, which is cool. But that comes out of being, being brave and facilitating, being willing to facilitate a real open conversation with citizens, right? In a quick effort to facilitate, uh, just two quick two quick items from a kind of housekeeping. So one is um, we've been asked to make sure that everyone gets the mic when they speak because otherwise it doesn't show up in the recording and they really want to capture this for people who will be watching virtually uh, in many orders of magnitude more than this room uh, over time. So if you can please use the mics, that'll help a lot for our video crews here. And then secondly, just in a uh, quick uh, response, we also printed out a number of handouts that we'll have at the door on the way out with just a bunch of links of collaborative tools that we've seen that kind of embody a lot of these principles. That way you don't have to keep writing down all the links uh, you know, endlessly. So that'll be at the end of the session yeah, as well. Yeah, I was just, just going to follow up. I'd be happy to chat with you, I think, between you know some combination of like you know, a mass mailing program, YouTube, uh, Lumio, and or Hilo, you could create a kind of a very sophisticated system for kind of gathering and representing this the the data and deciding upon it. So we could we could pretty easily put something together out of all these tools. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Yeah. <laughs> Hi, uh, Evan Weber. Uh, thanks so much uh, for all your thoughts. Um, so I was uh, very involved in the Global Occupy movement as well. So I appreciated your uh, remarks, both positive and uh, let's say reflective on on that experience. Um, but uh, I was actually in um, in New York uh, in Zuccotti Park on the first day of the occupation and. One of the conversations that I remember very vividly us having at the time um, was whether we were going to use uh, tools like Twitter and Facebook, um, which the culture of those types of tools and um, you know their, the, those corporations reflected a lot of the things and you know the very bodies that we were um, fighting against. Um, we ultimately decided to use them because they were very valuable. Um, but, but that conversation has always stuck with me in terms of the balance of using, um, you know, using these tools that have wider audiences versus using our own movement tools. Um, and so, um, I guess I, I I wonder if any of you have any um, thoughts or reflections on how to how to strike that balance and and in what way and. When's the best time to use what? I mean, I think part of what's what's happening, and you know, in terms of what Ben was describing, with how Lumio is emerging in a different way and uh, is open source, is a social venture, but is also scaling to thousands and thousands of people. Uh, and in our own case at Hilo, we're also trying to be as uh, sort of powerful and alternative to some of those big platforms with uh, a lot of the sort of ease of use and features and scalability that you've come to expect, but as an open source social venture. And so I think that the, the sort of the movement tools, as you describe them, are actually catching up um, in terms of their, their sort of functionality and their capabilities. Uh, and as they grow into wider and wider use, then you're going to see, uh, you're going to see some really interesting things shifting in the, in the sort of the broader social media conversation and how we use these tools to organize, collectivize, share resources, and build movements. 
Um, just uh, just wanted to um, to give people a. I, I'm sure there are some people in the room um, to whom the term open source is kind of this. Uh, you might have heard it before, but it's so often this kind of jargon. Um, so open source just refers to the the source code of a piece of software. So the actual computer code that it's written in being kept public, like being kept as a public resource, rather than like locking it away as a you know this proprietary thing that you've got. To, so most software on the market is they they use the word proprietary. Again, it's kind of an inaccessible term, but proprietary means closed source. Microsoft, everything they do, Facebook, Twitter, all of them, they keep their code concealed behind closed doors because they don't want it to be a public resource. Um, so that's something, I, I think particularly in movement building, it's something that's really important to take into account alongside the, the business models driving the software that's being used. And particularly, like just over the last 10 years, the, the prevalence of business models driving online software that rely on extracting user data and selling it to market research companies. And when a, you know, when a software tool starts off with good intent, but that's the business model, and that's the business model that's pushed by the venture capital that's funding it, all kinds of crazy things start to happen, right? Like these platforms essentially become, the driver is to come up with more and more ingenious ways of extracting as much information out of people as you possibly can so that you can monetize, <laughs> sell it off to market research companies. Um, so I, again, I think it's a really important and often kind of invisible consideration. So these spaces online like Facebook, they feel public, right? Everyone's there. It's, so it's like you're in a... Um, it's like you're in a public park kind of hanging out with, with your friends or your family and Everything you do is under surveillance. Every interaction is being recorded and taken away and monetized. Uh, so it's this kind of, this really interesting sort of public-private dynamic that, um, yeah, I'm really hopeful that it is shifting. Like, platforms like Hilo, like, they're just, there is kind of a movement around this. Genuinely usable open source software. And I think the more we can push that forward, the more progress we'll make. I just want to put one addendum, which is um, it makes me sad when energy is stomped out because it all gets sucked into a debate about what tool are we going to use. <laughs> and if what you've got is an amazing group of people who want to do important work together and they really want to use Facebook, like, go for it. Just, you know, know what you're doing. It's, it's exactly the same as... Uh, you want to do some important work, so you get in your car and you burn some gasoline and you go there and you're making that call. And we understand that it's a compromise. Um, we have to make these compromises sometimes. Like, if you think about, I mean, there are so many, many, many examples of things which have kicked off because of things like Twitter and Facebook. And we use tools like Google Drive and Trello. And, like, I don't think the answer is to be a fundamentalist either. But, but you got to know what choices you're making. <laughs> Hi, my name is Nikki Davies. Um, I've been an activist in a bunch of different organizations over a long time, uh, and I predate the internet. You know, so it's been an interesting journey over the last 20 years. And one of the things that being an organizer in the real world 
and seeing how the virtual world has developed and seeing particularly environmental organisations, which is what I work for, see it very much as a delivery mechanism and watching it become a community. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how we, as those people, and this is even this, we're talking about using these tools, where increasingly it seems to me that we need to be thinking about how do we organise in this community that is organised virtually, just as we've been organising in the communities that aren't organised virtually. And how do we make that mental shift from using the tool, like we obviously, it is inherently a technology and then we, therefore we are inherently using the tools that are available. But how, how do we turn it into really into organizing in that world rather than using it to organize in a world that perhaps uh, isn't existing in the way that it always has? Does that make sense? One, one small tactic is just the uh, establishment of memes. Um, they're familiar with this idea of memes on the internet, right? Um, you know, ideas is spreading mental genes. Um, and, you know, you see this across all the platforms and they're the shared vocabulary, shared ideas that can transcend and, and spread, the, uh, spread the word, but then still have that anchor back ideas so that the community can kind of self-organize. Uh, because, you know, as has been mentioned, there's so many different tools and this conversation is going to happen across all of the different platforms. It's going to happen on Lumio and on Facebook and on Twitter. And so, but the ideas can bring it all back together and memes can spread and can be rehashed and, and developed. So that's just one thought that can help in, in this community organizing online. Uh, thank you. I'm not sure if, oh. Um, one of the things that um, uh, I hear is, you know, there's lots of tools. There's a lot of different tools. There's siloed tools, for example, the social media, Hilo, Lumio. Uh, I wanted to ask about distribution because, um, and I'll just say it bluntly, uh, my question. I run a 400-city local news network. It's uh, six years old and, and very mature. And uh, last year, we started a 100-city um, news network for social impact. And, and my question is, how do I get everyone who's a writer or journalist or publisher in this room on our network? And I can't figure that one out. I mean, I, I don't know if this is exactly an answer, and you talked about um, sort of siloed platforms and things like that. One of the things that we've been trying to do from the very start is to build something that actually is designed to break apart silos um, and have a kind of porosity between different layers of different groups. Uh, and so there's, there's on the, the way Hilo is designed, it's actually you could quite easily structure your network of you know, 100 cities within a particular network, and then within each of those city communities, you could have a number of different projects, and you could be selectively sharing information with two communities, with five communities, with three communities over here, and three people from a totally different network. 
and uh, making some stuff selectively public or private uh, to the whole internet. And so there's there are ways where, you know, some of the platform designers are feeling feeling your pain and trying to figure out how we can actually represent real community shapes and real community needs in terms of their need to break down silos and be porous and interact with Twitter and interact with Facebook and interact with other situations, uh, other people. So it's it's not so it's not so dire in a certain sense uh, as as you know, in terms of what we're doing and potentially other new generation platforms where you could easily have that community represented in 400 cities and have meaningful conversations at fractal layers. Yeah, it's also a question we grapple with a lot in our business um, around distribution. You know, Ben spoke about open source. The way we describe it is uh, that really, open source programs and tools are like Lego bricks. And it's such a gift to the ecosystem to develop a Lego brick that then everyone else can use. And so let's like develop a lot of Legos. And a lot of the interfacing to make these things interoperable come through APIs. And APIs is just an, another word for kind of programmatic languages that make it really easy for software to work together. And so I think from a technologist perspective, Developing things in open source tools with really easy to use APIs is one of the ways we're going to facilitate an internet where uh, communities aren't just trapped on Google and Facebook and they're really spread out across all these different platforms. The other quick thought I'd have is just, you know, really making sure when you look at the programs that are quite successful at distribution, it tends to be kind of focused on one particular solution set. So maybe it's, you know, news for one city or maybe it's you know news for 100 cities that's particularly focused on one topic but you know i think the internet's like still wild west early days and we're all being adopted really fast and whatever stands out as like solving a real problem just immediately goes like wildfire across all of these different platforms and tools and so just maybe kind of playing with that one a bit um so response oh, so response to that one um I think it's it's about just a relentless focus on delivering user value. And I think a lot of us who work in the social impact space, you know, we're we're not here for the primarily for the profit motive, but um we have to deeply understand and use to the maximum all of the tools of iterating toward user value, of understanding the market, of understanding uh, the relationship between user value and how we sustain ourselves financially and how we thrive and support more impact-driven projects. And it's just, it's just got to be about the user experience and it's got to be about uh, the technical expertise. And it's just no different. It's no different than a commercial startup on all of those things. The difference is that the reason why we are doing all those things is different. It's not about getting maximum amount of user data so we can sell it or whatever, advertising as much as possible to people. But, it, but it's all the same. Like, we just have to be as good and better because there's people out there who are super smart and they're making stuff that's super useful. Um, and they don't have the value, the, the, the core and the values, or they're not thinking about how do we transition to a different world in the same way. So I, I don't know. I just, I don't, I don't want us to hide from any of that. I want us to be out there in the market being better. Yeah, let's, 
let's I, let's talk too because I think we can we can offer more if we know how to help you. Um, just then, so yeah. Thank you. I'm curious of how you're sustaining yourself and how you grow, and you're doing all the right things in terms of not selling data and user information that shouldn't be sold. And uh, I'm just curious of maybe an innovative business model that you have. Um, so, um, I mean, it's been one of the main challenges, right? It's, I mean, it's basically this. Rec we're coming from a place of recognition of um, the default mode of scaling technology, venture capital, is fundamentally broken if you want to build technology that has a positive impact in the world and you want to keep the control over that mission. Um, so we've, it's, taken us, <laughs> it's taken us some time to figure out a mechanism that can bring in finances, that can really enable growth. So we've been getting by for three years uh, offering services. So we do trainings, we do um, consulting for large organizations using Lumio. Government departments that start using it very quickly realize that they don't actually know how to talk to citizens. Uh, so they'll get us to hold their hands through that process. So we, you know, we help people develop engagement strategies and collaboration strategies, all that work, which is really in line with our core, our core values. You know, we're, we're going into, sometimes into companies or into large organizations and literally coaching them through devolving power in their organizations, which is a pretty special thing to be doing. And Alana is a master of it. Um, yeah, we ran a crowdfunding campaign. So we basically used this diversity of tactics. We ran a crowdfunding campaign a year and a bit ago that raised enough to keep us, um, you know, to keep us going for a year of development. And the long game is rolling out a subscription model, which actually, as of last week, we have an automated payment system. And we've rolled out a, an ethical business model that's um, based around groups with a budget pay a subscription for using the software, a per month subscription. Groups without a budget are on a gift economy plan. Um, so we're balancing accessibility with financial sustainability, and, and it's working. Uh, it's tough, but it's working. And we're doing a round of um, socially conscious impact investing in the cooperative structure while retaining full control over the mission. So again, that's been a process of figuring out a structural mechanism that acknowledges risk, um, acknowledges um, acknowledges the, the need for capital to keep flowing, but doesn't put the mission at the expense of that. And luckily for us, we have found People, you know, we're, we're told that we're crazy, that no investor will go for this, that, you know, investors just want control and they want infinite, the possibility of infinite returns. Um, we developed a mechanism that just seemed kind of sensible to us, that seemed like the value of return matched the value of, of risk. And um, and we've found, we've found investors to come on board. So we're actually right in the middle of an impact investment raise. So... It's, it's really interesting to have that question at this time. But yeah, I, I would just say these people are out there. Um, they really are. They just don't often have this opportunity put in front of them. And I'll echo that in saying I could say almost all exactly the same things. We're sort of a social, social impact first, and we attract social impact investors. And we have a very, um, for communities that can pay, we have a subscription fee. And for communities that can't, we work it out. Um, and that's 
seems to be working so far. I'll jump in just because we're a little bit different in that we are a for-profit company and we did take seed capital early on. Um, but I also couldn't agree more with Ben that venture capital is very broken right now. Um, technology offers huge opportunities, but in many ways I think what's happened over the past decade is that the cost of building a technology-enabled company has come way down. And so what a company needs in order to get to a really interesting place is much more accessible. You can build a very capital efficient business today in a way that wasn't possible before you had so many things in the cloud and so much open source software that you could leverage. But venture capital hasn't changed. And so the way that we've chosen to deal with that is by going very, very, very slow at the seed stage. So we're three years in and we've only raised a seed round, which is kind of unheard of for companies that follow the typical venture track. And the reason that we did that is we wanted to find a sustainable business model along the way. And so we found that our big mission is to bring together the world's experts. The way that we're able to help kind of pay for and fuel that mission is be, by creating high quality learning content around those experts and then making that available through subscription, which is a great revenue stream, or to companies that are looking to train their employees. Um, and also along the way, it's given us a chance to start finding the investors who do care about having an impact. So we have um, a number of our investors that um, we brought on specifically because they have that orientation um, that we've made impact commitments to them for uh, as a part of that. And also we brought them in so that as we grow, we do believe that we will be able to take on substantially higher investments over time, but we want to be able to do so with enough people in our corner supporting us in the positive impact, a kind of positive way of building, um, so that we keep the leverage. So I think there are ways to do it for profit, for good as well, but um, you have to be really thoughtful along the way in order to, to make it happen. Yeah. I'd say also, uh, just on this topic of funding, which I know is, is very near and dear to a lot of us in our, in our ventures, um, I think crowdfunding is just incredibly potent um, for a number of reasons, sometimes slightly overlooked. You know, what crowdfunding forces you to do at times is get really clear about what you're trying to accomplish and see how much it resonates with a large group of people. And if you think about it, you know, the lines are really blurring because crowdfunding is another way of just... Uh, customers giving you money, it, it, sometimes this is an advance, sometimes it can be crowd equity now where they have shares in your uh, structure. And I think if we see a couple crowd equity based companies have some sort of successful uh, exit where return on uh, for shareholders was achieved, there might be even more belief that gets built in the crowd equity models. Uh, but still giving the individuals who have created the venture full control of those, of those decisions. And the other thing I just say is, you know, uh, with venture capital, I think part of what's breaking is just indicative of, a, of an economic system where there's a high concentration uh, of wealth, where there's, there's kind of this relentless pursuit of not even the next 10x, but the next 1,000x. It's like if you can't scale to the moon, we don't care. And yet capital tends to flow in things that make above average returns. And you look at how much money is in government bonds, you look at how much money is in you know, traditional stock market indexes and, what, and the like. When things hit a velocity and they're working, when Lumio has its subscription model and it's turning and the models are a little bit easier to predict and it's less of a startup, I think more capital comes in that's not necessarily looking for the 1,000x but says, okay, I know that this might make 5% on my money or 10% or 20% or the like. 
Um, so I think there's reasons to be hopeful, uh, one of the only reasons to be hopeful about our current economic paradigms, uh, but reasons to be hopeful that more capital will come in that, um, that's a little bit more aligned. Okay, kind of building on the movement question, as we are in a big movement building kind of community, um, I'm just thinking back in the day when um, when Wiser Earth started up and then that went bust, people shifted to idealists and there's the whole like tribal convergence network and I started something called the Global Summit and we've always looked to like this, that we have this need for this one mega platform that's gonna like solve all our problems and weave everyone together and make it easier. And um, as you said, it's like this, there's this need for like the movement leaders or more leadership to kind of, I'm, I'm curious about the ability of creating more coherence um, in like having more integrity and tracking social capital and impact of the individual users. Like how can we weave together these constantly improving sub-technologies to have coherence and continuity in the movement so that we're not breaking down every time there's some new better platform? Yeah, I've got a dream, everybody. No, um, so so um, it's really actually a really exciting time. Um, so uh, just this, uh, just a few days ago, uh, Tuesday and Wednesday in Oakland, um, we had a, I helped to convene a kind of a gathering of thirty-five people from all over the world, many of whom are stewarding their own sort of collaborative software system. And we created essentially what we're calling right now the Collaborative Software Consortium, where we are trying to figure out how do we actually, because all, all of this, this was a fun joke from the retreat, we're all here uh, in, at, that, at that retreat and uh, because we believe that we can do more together. And so I said, what we're here to do is to figure out how we can do more together together um, and figure out how we can actually start to build consciously with an understanding of each of the roles that all of our tools are playing and build uh, interoperability um, both at the, the user experience level as well as at the sort of API technical level um, so that we can begin to sort of pass data and information and use the right tool for the right circumstances so that you're, you're, you're not gonna be faced with, okay, which platform are we going to use? If because if I use up all my social capital to get people on platform A, but I realize we need to make decisions with Lumio, then all of a sudden, we're, you know, you know, God help us, our people are never going to join two platforms or three platforms or four or whatever. But so actually, I think our task right now as sort of social entrepreneurs, social good software developers for the common good is to figure out how to build an ecosystem of interoperable tools so that you can, you can move data and participants easily to have a seamless experience. So that's, that's one of the things we're deeply dedicated to. Thanks, Edward. Um, yeah, I was at that gathering and I really believe in that, in that dream and that's why, you know, People say we all need to be on the one platform. We have the one platform. It's called the internet. <laughs> if we can make uh, open source tools that can work beautifully together, then that will reveal that. So I want to say I totally support that. And 
And there's this really cool thing going on, which I'm thinking of as kind of like a democratization of the discourse, you know, which, you know, this is a, a word that I've been thinking about a lot this year that used to be in, I don't know, academic journals or conferences. I mean, it still is, for sure. But I've, I'm part of this amazing discourse on Facebook and, this, and, and, and Twitter and Lumio and all these different places at once. And I probably, many of those connections I'll lose and I'll forget who that was or who said that and I'll lose the conversation. But um, I have learned so much. I've learned so much about social justice. I've learned so much about open source software. I've learned, and I'm just, I'm just out there surfing it. And it's okay that it's not all on the same platform. And it's okay that we're not all organized. And it's okay that we're not in one coherent movement. It's the blessed unrest of software platforms. <laughs> so there's like an art to doing that. And for me, it's about like managing my email inbox. I'm really good at it. And um, <laughs> I actually think that's like a massive area for social impact is like help everybody deal with this huge information overload. I know, I know the pain, right? I know, I know. Um, but I do think we all have, I mean, of course, there's a responsibility to solve these problems for everyone and understand the systemic reasons and understand the technology reasons. And, and, and we can do a lot personally to just not accept, it's just not, to not accept that we're just going to be overwhelmed with it, but actually get on top of it, understand it, know that you can, you can take control of your inbox with, with various techniques and tools, and you can, I mean, my personal approach is like, turn off all notifications and remember to go look at the app, and you know, you can do that, or you can be a, you know, email me everything, and I'm going to use filters and tags, and I mean, I know it sounds complicated, but um, if we can, just kind of relax into it and let it flow and jump into the discourse and all these places that well, I just think amazing things happen and and um, and it's okay it's okay that we're, I'm not I'm gonna let go I'm trying to let go of the anxiety but all these amazing people are floating away you know it's okay we're all still here we're gonna keep working together yeah, yeah. Uh, how's everybody doing today? I don't know if anybody asked you how you folks are doing, but if someone hasn't, I'm asking you, how are you folks doing today? All right, cool. I'm asking that because either I'm really tired or the energy in this building is getting kind of low because we're all tired. Um, I do have a question for you all, but I have a response to the question she had. Um, yeah, so uh, my name is Salvin Chahal. I'm 21. I'm from Sacramento, California. That's where I work. I work at Soul Collective. Uh, I'm a published author, organizer, and poet MC out of that organization. And uh, we focus on art, culture, and activism. We've been around for 10 years. And we're shifting from working in our community to working in our community and also uh, producing content like media uh, locally and globally. Um, and my response to you was, how do you do actual organizing when a lot of folks are organizing on the internet. So I come from a community, a struggling community where we don't have a lot of resources and the only folks working in that community to change that community are the folks in that community or folks from that community. But there's even more people talking about how we need to change it outside of the community but they're never doing anything about it except hashtags on the internet and all that. <laughs> um, so we push art, culture, activism through content, media, films, and journalism and all that. And to go back to the first question that you had in the back, um, we don't have that face-to-face -face interaction, so we lose that feeling. But the thing with media and content is that 
we're sharing information. So because of that, we get to have conversations with people we know or probably don't know about information that we didn't have before that we recently learned, right? And to answer your question as well is um, we have to push information, important information in a way that we're not just planting the seed, but we're pushing it in a way that it motivates the people to water those seeds. And in a world where there's always information getting pushed out, a lot of important art and information seems to get lost within a couple of days or in a couple of weeks. So my question to you all is, what do we do to keep those important information, those art and all that, not forgotten? <laughs> Responses? <laughs> okay, wait. Wait a Let's see who he asks next, and I'll take. Okay, I'm I thought that. Yeah. Okay, do we basically need a website where, where any new kind of social organizing or community app is listed, so everybody uh, could know where where to go or where not to go, like a, like a source for that. That is a, a good question. We're gonna we're gonna hand out a list. It's only got about ten sites on it, so I don't know if it's the full list. Um, but yeah, I think that was also a topic that was raised. Um, yeah, and and we also want to come back to the question here about I, I how do we some... ensure this media sticks. You know what you're talking about. On this. Yeah. I got one to say on that. I got a mic already. Um, so basically, the way I've been seeing this whole revolution happening and the way I've been navigating it is by the people-to-people -people interactions being sort of the fuel. So we use the platforms to connect in person. So it's like you're consuming all this art and all this media, but the next step then is the face-to-face -face experience because I think that that's really the transmission coming here is much more intoxicating to me, to every cell in my body than watching this talk online. Like I learn from all of you. I'm already I'm learning from the field. And so as an artist, you know, I'm a photographer, um, and find myself in these just perpetually going to different experiences, different festivals, different concerts, and putting myself in these fields where I can absorb that information. And so I think the more that we use the tools to then bring people together. It's like if I want to find somebody who's a specialist in polka dancing photography, I can find them. Like that's the thing is like we can find exactly the tools that we need and invite them and pull them into these conversations both online and in person. So I think like the art is really the, for me I think it's like the highest. It's like we flip, we bring spirit and art to the top and we really allow that to fuel the in-person and then the, the structural stuff. That can happen when we're, you know, we're in our homes. We can organize when we're like in our pajamas, like hanging out with our kids or whatever it is. And so when do we need community and how do we use the art and the spirit to really fuel that? Well, you know, the reason why I bring up media as well as art and emphasizing on the art is because with art, you can throw people off and that creates a huge conversation. Uh, for example, like with Co Cosmopolitan said, quote unquote, uh, that periods went public this year. Have you guys like heard about that at all? The periods went public this year. And two of the contributors for that are two of my friends and they use art 
to throw people off, art that throws people off. My friend Rupi Kaur, who's from Toronto, she posted like a period photo series and it got taken down by Instagram twice. And it created a conversation and it really started a movement. And another one of my friends, she was uh, doing a marathon while she was on her period. And that created a conversation as well. So when folks are really thrown off through media and art, that creates a really, not just a conversation with many folks, but a really strong conversation. So that goes back to what I was saying. It's how you push it and the content in itself that sometimes creates these movements. All right. Well, um, in response to what the gentleman was just saying, uh, my name is Paul Miller, a.k.a. DJ Spooky, and I do uh, Origin Magazine, and I'm also going to be DJing tonight, so maybe you should come up on stage. And... Yeah. <laughs> um, but one of the things that I'm really intrigued by this kind of comparing of best practices that we're seeing today is we need to focus on some of the success models, and I'm really intrigued by stuff like Global Citizen. Uh, they've been able to activate entire communities by uh, giving away free concerts where you, in order to go to the concert, for example, you have to show how much social good you've done. Uh, and the metrics are very, you know, you know, very granular, but they're also very immersive. Um, there's also like uh, social networks like Elo, uh, where it's invitation only as an alternative to Facebook. So, I mean, when you, the gentleman was just talking about how do we water those seeds. I mean, Martin Luther King didn't show up and say, I have a nightmare. You know, it's like, um, you know, you get, you kind of, you, you, <laughs> you give a little bit of extra spice and people, people respond. So to my question, and this is something I want to riff on with people here, is software is ideology at this point. I mean, there's definitely a lot of layers of how software in, um, encodes different aspects of consumerism, of, of transparency and other issues. But post Snowden and other issues, the, the activist community really needs to get up to speed. Um, and stuff, when you think about when Aaron Schwartz was doing Reddit, for example, um, or for that matter, when you look at how people have been using tools like Tor, um, you know, the anonymous uh, search engines like DuckDuckGo or stuff like that, we need to, I think, compare better practices more. And so that's where I sometimes think the activist community can sometimes overestimate uh, the impact of, you know, being in the same place at the same time. Uh, so I'd love to ask uh, the panel as well is when you look at open source uh, software like Ubuntu, for example, that's not adopted as much as it could be, um, and most people barely know how their computer works at this point as well. So there's like an asymmetric relationship between people who do code and people who use it, a deeply asymmetric. Um, where would you find a good balance for creating a community that is both responsive and immersed? Because it's People, there's only 24 hours in the day. I mean, and people are saturated. So I'd love to hear, you know, kind of maybe some best practices. Something. <laughs> I think you're just raising like the most important questions. Um, I think part of it is, I mean, on sort of um, on the point that like no one knows how to how the computers even work these days. Like I. I totally feel that, and it's terrifying, right? It's the sense of powerlessness, like you're, you're sort of beholden to, you just have to put your trust, and it feels like you just have to put your trust into these companies that we actually have no reason to trust. Um, Doug, there's a, there's a, a New York-based writer um, called Douglas Rushkoff who wrote a, a book, you probably know it, called Program or Be Programmed. And his focus, he's basically like putting out this thesis that... Um, that so much of our lived experience now is mediated through technology, that there's this like complex dynamic between, between people and the technology they use, and they both inform and shape each other. And his, his main push is um, if, 
if you don't understand code or how to code, then you're kind of being shaped by it and it's this one-way asymmetrical relationship. I've never written a line of code in my life, um, so I kind of, I agree with them and it also kind of feels bad and I kind of, I don't, um, I don't think everyone should sort of feel guilty for not knowing how to code, but I do think we should all collectively be working to bring down the barriers to people learning how software works. Um, in Spiral, um, the network that Alana and I and others are part of um, has started up a, a developer training academy, and it's so it's it's teaching in Spiral Academy. Um, they teach this sort of developer boot camp model where they within a I think it's a what is it an eight week nine-week program, they bring in largely young people and people from underserved populations, um, come in within nine weeks, they come out the other side, socially conscious computer programmers. So they're teaching like, they're doing empathy training and code training and it's all within a, and yoga, all within a social justice framework. It's like this amazing combination. And I mean, it's, and it's not hard to do. And actually, it's only one of the initiatives. Like, there are so many initiatives like this that are happening. There's Black Girls Code. There are just so many really, really on-point initiatives happening. And, yeah, I, I don't know. The more of that that we can see and foster, I think, having this greater collective understanding of how the technologies we're using are shaping us and using us and how that interplay works, uh, I think it's a really important thing to get to. Just to add directly to what was just said, I, I also just want to, um, I guess, ask if we need to draw this dichotomy between the online and the offline as much as I feel like this conversation often does. And I feel like all of our lived experience is this flow of online and offline, and they're both the real world, and they're both about humans in a way, depending on how you look at it. One story that I really like from the, the early days of Lumio, um, one of the, the things that we were working on at the same time we were starting Lumio um, was this open source community gallery space um, around the, the corner from our office. We, we got It's basically like after Occupy left the park, it kind of came indoors in a way <laughs> into the space and we wanted to run it uh, with the similar principles. Um, and it was just when Lumio just got started um, and early on in the, the days of the project, like we'd have these meetings and everyone was trying to sort stuff out on email, blah, blah, blah. When we got to the meetings, we just had to spend the whole time working out all the details of how we were going to run this gallery space. We got on Lumio and we uh, created a system where anybody could apply to use the space for any reason that fit the kind of values of you know, decommercialized de space. Um, and, and then we got to make all of those decisions online, the kind of boring decisions of reading applications and seeing if it, you know. And then when we got together in person, we could like share food and like play music and talk about some of the deeper, more like emotional or vision issues. And it was the online that freed up our offline experience and made this space for artistic expression and human connection and political conversation. So, Let's think about it as a whole, because it is a whole. I just want to say that, first of all, the entire panel is fabulous, but I'm really connecting with the Lumio lady. I think it's Alana. Hey. You know, and there's been a couple of times in this conversation, I've gotten very tense, and I almost felt like I had to stand up right here and do an advocacy, and I'll tell you why. I do absolutely online collaboration. For three years, I connect with people in very distant areas, including the Gaza Strip. I work with Nima Namadu in the Mama Shuan Center in the Congo. Um, throughout the Middle East, I have, uh, I call them clients, but they usually don't pay me. In Iraq, in Syria, in South America, um, you know, war-torn, social unjust, climate catastrophic areas. 
and why I felt like I almost needed to do an advocacy, and this is kind of in response to this gentleman also, is because I hear a lot of people talk about how do I get my message out. How do you connect with the people out there? I just want the whole community in this room to, to think for a second, not about what do I need, what do they need? When, with online specifically, what do they need? Okay, so if I'm working with Nima Namadu in the Congo, they need Skype. They need Skype um, because some of the heavier platforms like Zoom Video, which has gifted me software, and I'd like to talk to you guys later, doesn't work um, because the electricity goes on and off too much, and so it shorts out the computers, and for some reason Skype will hold the charge longer. Also, we can do international calls through Skype that aren't available in certain countries. Um, Facebook, everybody's talking about Facebook and how horrible it is. Get over it because billions of people are on Facebook and they are there. Whether you like it or not, they are there. So I use Facebook groups and I warn all my friends, everything's being recorded, you know, on Facebook. Be careful what we write here, but it's the place to start. And then when we need to really go to, you know, higher level stuff, we go to Viber. If you're not familiar with Viber, get used to it because it's the one thing Iran can't shut down when we're having a conversation and the country wants to shut us down. When I'm working with people, Viber, V-I-B-E-R, it's called a peer-to-peer, -peer. it's like WhatsApp, or there was another one right out of uh, San Francisco that helped fuel the umbrella Hong Kong revolution. Did you guys know about it? Okay, anyway, um, so so my, you know, the, uh, the advocacy almost had to stand up, but it's kind of come out around the room anyway, is don't connect with one. I mean, as much as I'm like really excited about Lumio because I've liked what you've said, I don't even care about what the software does. I need somebody that understands the emotional bandwidth of stuff like um, when I use Zoom video, I'm empowering women usually, usually women in the Middle East who are not comfortable speaking up even if they know English well. So I have to offer them private chat in the middle of the webinar because they don't want to speak up and ask the question if there's a lot of powerful men, but they will send me the private chat with the question that then I as a facilitator moderator, and that's a person who makes sure that everybody shuts up when you need to shut up, that offers translation, that offers you know empowerment issues back and forth between the conversation, or technical support because you can't technical support, which is usually the open source that I kind of shy away from just because of the technical issues in the areas I'm working in. Um, but if we're really collaborating, okay, you've got a great NGO, or I've got a great NGO, and you've got a great grassroots movement you are kind of growing, but who are you really trying to connect with if we're trying to solve big climate dilemmas? The Global South, the people that are having these issues. So before you decide what does my company need, please, Research your target audience. Research the invitees to your your situation um, and ask them what they need because the electricity, the bandwidth, the security, um, you know, Zoom is on Cisco routers. This is very important if I'm being tracked by the government and it's real. I'm not saying I'm on the FBI's most wanted list because I'm here at Bioneers, you know, smiling and waving. I'm really not. But we are all, if you're really doing the frontline work online, I've been tracked and shut down and gotten messages. Um, it's it's real and it's happening. So I just I'm happy to hear a little bit more about the you know how do we reach these other people and the thing with art, absolutely you need art. If I'm doing a a new groups specifically with groups, um, you have to have an icebreaker. It is a little bit harder to connect with people online, but it's not impossible. These are my friends from Gaza who have been invited here to Bioneers. We've connected very well for two years online, and this is the first time we've been able to meet in person, and it's great. 
we had a good relationship online before this. Well, maybe except for that one time. No. <laughs> but, you know, you can do it. You just have to make yourself get in there and do it. But this is what it's for. The Facebook and the online collaboration is for the people that can't afford to do the other businessy ways. Um, so I'm, now I'm off the soapbox. Thank you. But I just wanted to do that. Think about your audience. For anyone building software out there, or building tools, or anything really, one of the most inspiring things that I keep thinking to myself over and over again comes from a friend of mine called Lauren Ellen, and she just says, build with, not for. Build with, not for. For just for everything, and especially software, because software is, you can make anything, and that's hugely problematic. So, like, you can easily get the wrong idea about what somebody needs. So you've got to, and this is like, there are, there is great best practice from software actually that can be applied to all fields around how do you really do user testing? Get out of the building, you know, go talk to the real people and just listen to them and really deeply understand. Um, because there's stuff that uh, you just, yeah, you'll never think of from where you are. You have to. Here. I'm in beautiful San Rafael running it. I don't know what it's like to walk after dark in the Congo with militia after me because I had to wait half an hour to connect. It can't happen that way. And you have to know that before you connect with those people. Sorry. <laughs> Ooh. You guys all feel that? I'm Zipporah. I'm a photographer, and um, I've been just sort of sitting on my hands. I've had so many things I've wanted. I think we all are, like, so chomping at the bit. But um, I hear a lot of this, uh, this separation. This is Facebook is bad, or this is good. And um, a lot of things have come up for me. Um, I do work more in the arts. I do work more in focusing on what's good in the world. I feel like that's my task, not to... Uh, you know, call, draw attention to the social injustices or uh, champion some great cause, but to help people remember that there is so much good and beautiful in the world. And um, I, my work is very much in the world, in watching and witnessing, observing people. But my success has been almost entirely due to the availability and the immediate, the immediate accessibility of Facebook. And that's because I, I photograph these beautiful events, these like festivals that are cropping up all over that are teaching people how to be, like experiment and being in different communities like Burning Man. And I, I wander through and I witness and then I post them and these people grab the photos and they tag themselves and they get to see themselves having these experiences. And all these other people who weren't there get to experience through my photos and other people who are working in that field get to sort of vicariously experience these things that are happening very much in the real world, but they feel that, and they see the photos, and they want to go, and it attracts them to these other experiences that are actually real, very real, where you are connecting face-to-face. -face. And I, there is this, like, sure, I, we can, like, vilify. And the, the technology is there, and we can either let it limit us and judge it, or we can let it liberate us and, and let it allow us to, to reach the people that need to be reached in the ways that they need to. And I also want to say, I'm actually, um, I, I work with a lot of people, but I'm, I have major social anxiety. I actually am extremely uncomfortable when people are approaching me while I'm working because it takes me out of being present. But I have this incredible ability to connect online. My ex-husband and I met entirely it was a, an initial meeting, but we connected, and through Skype, through Messenger, 
if you can allow the thing to be something that creates a connection, instead of imagining that it's this foreign thing or that you have to touch, if you can allow yourself to open to the connection that is there, I mean, if we really want to go into esoteric, the, the distance is illusory. And if you can allow yourself to be open, there's so much ability to connect. There's a human on the other side of that. There's so much you can read into the way somebody words things. There are so many questions you can ask that you can actually get to know somebody in such a deep way. I actually think, for me, it's been a profound gift to be able to connect with somebody in Israel and feel such a tremendous sense of love and connection and heart that, again, I just want to bring that piece in because there's a lot of like looking at the technicalities and looking at like, you know, uh, and also even as far as like you can be programmed or, or program, I want to point out we, a lot of us probably drive vehicles or talk on the phone or turn on a light switch. We don't all know how to program those things or build those cars or like even repair the engines. But we use those technologies because we've accepted them as part of our everyday life. And there are those who are here to build and program and create those things. And there are those of us who have other gifts to offer, like being and seeing and using those technologies to reach the people that need to be reached. So I just want to bring that part in. There's so much heart that can come into here, and we can allow these things to liberate us and connect us. And thank you so much for what you're doing to bring the heart into those spaces. Thank you. Um, yeah, I want to ask if this thing that I've been envisioning for a minute already exists. Um, and I'm going to actually approach it from a direction that I've never approached it from in conversation with anyone before. But when I was like 15, 16 years old, I was learning about social justice and, you know, the movement against global capitalism and all these things through like researching stuff online and like going from Wikipedia page to Wikipedia page to website and like learning about all this stuff. And in the living world, I was looking around me and seeing that no one in the town that I lived in and no one anywhere around me cared about anything like this. Like everyone was entirely apathetic. And so I was looking for something to get engaged in, some way to organize, some way to take action in the world. And I remember like not being able to find anything. Either there were groups that were like way too big and really didn't seem to align with what I wanted to do. Like there was like moveon.org and I would like go to a, you know, like, um, just, yeah, these big organizations that weren't really doing the stuff. And I find so much potency in these groups of like five to 20, 20 to 50 people in these collaborative organizations. Um, and finally, I found this group called like the Bergen Action Network and I emailed them and then it took me four months for them to like email me back. So what I'm wondering is, is there already something online that exists where when people know that they want to get engaged in the world, they want to organize in community, they want to take action and they want to find their co-organizers, they want to find their collaborators, they want to find their co-creators, and they want to be able to search for those people on a regional basis, and then based on matching of like passions and interests towards the groups and organizations and actions that they want to organize, is there already something like that that exists? Because um, I have a particular like cultural entry point right now where I've been working with this musician, um, and I've been working with this specific music community where there's the opportunity to take all of those thousands of people that are engaging in these action days that we do and engaging with that community and funnel them into becoming organizers and actors and meeting each other. And we can do that facilitation work on the ground. We can also do it online. I'm wondering if this like dating website for connecting co-organizers together already exists or not. I'm not trying to reinvent something. 
Hi, Ryan. Um, so we have been talking about the digital network through the Northern California um, Res Community Resilience Network. And, um, you know, we've been calling it the digital network mainly to do that, and it's through Skillshare and mentoring is what we're talking about. We're, we're actually talking about the same thing. And um, we're just trying to organize the activists a little bit more in the Northern California area because there are so many of us, and we don't, we haven't networked enough um, in person, and we want to do it in an organized way. We're doing it through permaculture, uh, the the guild. We're doing it through trans transition initiatives. Um, but I'm inviting everybody out. Like, can we walk out of this room with somewhere where we can continue this conversation? That's so with the the NorCal network. We haven't, everybody's saying something different. We, we don't even know which topic to start with. So the one topic we've started a discussion online about is how do we start this thing? And, or where is it going to be? You know, and, um, if we can walk out with, like, let's talk on Lumio after this, I would be so happy about that. Can I? Thank you. I have one thing to add, too. There is something kind of available. It's not quite like a dating profile of who you are as an activist and what you have to offer, but the action switchboard out of the uh, Yes Lab is something that's kind of that same way. So you post an idea and you crowdsource for materials, resources, people with skills that are unique to that need for that action, um, and it kind of works the opposite, too. So it's not so profile-based, but it's I have this skill and I have this burning passion and I want to build a crew of people to do that. And it was in beta last year, but there is something like that happening. Action, oh. Action switchboard. <laughs> um, there are two other networks that come to my mind. Um, based on what you're, you're describing you're looking for, one is the Evolver network, um, which is still really active. Um, and one of their key organizers is in the Bay Area doing really, really good work. Uh, another network, ah, I mean the, the Earth, Earth Guardians network, um, have like 350 groups worldwide, like within the last 18 months. So they're, they're proliferating really, really quickly too. Great. We have the mic there. Hi. Is, is the mic on? Yes. Excellent. Uh, I'm Carolyn Brown and I just have a question probably for the panelists, but anyone else who has thoughts on about security. And I hear you talking about open source software and also these networks where you're inviting all kinds of people to contribute to the conversation. And certainly we have a long history of folks infiltrating social change networks. And I just wondered what your thoughts are, what the risks are, how the technology addresses it, and, and just uh, how we're all coping with that. And we're going to quickly give the mic here. I think in response to the last question, we'll come right to the security one. Okay. Uh, go ahead, and then we'll do security. Hi, everyone. Um, my name is Josh Hart. I'm director of StopSmartMeters.org. We are a uh, grassroots organization, been around for about five years, helping people all internationally uh, organize and fight against the smart grid, which is a false solution to climate change, poses some serious health risks. Uh, fire risks and uh, overcharging a number of problems. Uh, StopSmartMeters.org. And uh, I, I just want to have a, a discussion. I know this we're toward the end of the session here, but I just want to uh, have a conversation with you all about the dark side of technology. Uh, last Saturday, I was in a conference in Mountain View, the Center for Performing Arts, just down the road from Google. And uh, the former head of the California Public Utilities Commission was there. 
many physicians, psychiatrists, researchers, and what they reported, without going into a lot of depth, is that wireless technology, uh, which is microwave radiation that we're talking about, uh, is associated with cancer. Uh, it's been designated by the World Health Organization as a class 2B possible human carcinogen. Uh, has uh, untold effects through peer-reviewed re research on frog development, bird development, uh, human cells. Uh, a woman who's a, uh, 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 she works with children, she's a doctor, uh, reported that children with autism, which has increased, uh, um, you know, hundreds of per thousand percent over the last several years, uh, when you remove these children from exposure to wireless radiation, they uh, get better overnight. A lot of them do. And uh, a 10-year-old boy who'd never spoken a sentence in his life, uh, was his parents removed all wireless technology from the, the, the house, and within three days, he was speaking full sentences. And what she asked the, the, the crowd was, you know, is it more important for us to be able to speak to anyone, anywhere, or for this child, and for ch some children, to speak at all? So you asked how we were feeling. To be honest, I'm feeling uh, nauseous, I've got a headache, uh, this wireless mic isn't probably helping, but I think it's from the iPads and the iPhones in the room. How can we, uh, I hear people talking about extending cell phone technology and putting up cell towers in Africa. How is that, is that really the right thing when we're talking about putting people and ecosystems at greater risk for disease? Uh, we have to think of the, the dark side of this. Awesome. Thank you for bringing it up. I, I'm just cognizant we have a couple minutes. Yes. Great question. So, Final thoughts on that, security, and anything else, 30 seconds or less each. Wow. Okay. Uh, I'm going to go to the security question, just because that's something we've specifically thought about and haven't thought as much about the other one. Um, yes, that's a super important question. Um, on one level, we can do something about it, which is... Um, We've tried to make Lumio uh, possible to make safe for activists, specifically by... Um, let, you can install it on your own server. You can grab, you know, make your own instance of Lumio and use your own security on your own server and completely control. You can turn up. I mean, we do use some third-party services in our hosted version, and we are really transparent about what they're for. But if you don't want that, you can just install your own version, switch them all off. You could use it just internally on your own network. Um, so we understand that activists and people around the world have very serious security concerns, and we really do care about that. And um, we just have to say, look, if you're using our hosted version, all we can do is, is follow best like industry best practice and, and, and promise that we are never going to release your data to anyone. But we can't keep the NSA out of, we can't, we can't, I, I can't, I don't know what to do about that. <laughs> um, I do think that it's very important that we are politically aware of this issue and that we are organized about it, similar to, to how we're organized politically about other important issues. And, Great. I, I don't know, but that one is, yeah, huge, but we're doing what we can. Yeah. All right, so uh, thank you so much. Clearly, there's so many things to talk about. We've already hit our time here. Uh, the panelists are going to stay, so as you have follow-up thoughts or conversations, we invite you to come up. Um, Ed's going to share just quickly how we can uh, continue this conversation online, so he'll share with that on Hilo. Uh, logistically, Michelle has a handout, so when you're at the door, um, if you want to grab a piece of paper that has links and some additional things on the security front, it's actually, you know, something that I've been working on a number, you know, research encryption, research decentralization, 
uh, those are two words that can open up a lot of a lot of unique rabbit holes. Thank you, everyone. Please, uh, uh, Ed, go ahead on that. Yeah. Anyone who wants to continue the conversation and stay connected and talk about tools and the right tool for different circumstances, you can go to hilohylo.com and use the invite code Bioneers, uh, and you'll become a part of the group that's forming here. There's also an Android and iOS app for people who prefer those technologies. So hilo.com or hilo in the App Store or Play Store. You invite code Bioneers. <laughs>